0: Hey, thanks for stopping by. Welcome to The Tin. I'm Scott Fellman, your host on this adventure into the murky, tinted world of the Blackwater Botanical Natural Style Aquarium and all those other specialties that we like to play with around here. Today, I want to talk about uh, a concept that I think we can all relate to, um, another way of interpreting uh, nature in our aquariums. and It's basically uh, sort of what I'd call living off the land. Well, sort of. you know, if you're like me, you spend a lot of time, maybe too much time, pondering pretty much all sorts of arcane aspects of the hobby. Okay, so maybe you're not like me, but if you have a rather keen interest in the way nature operates in the wild aquatic systems of the world, we probably have something in common here. I study a lot of details about some of the habitats from which our fishes come. I can't help but occasionally wonder exactly what it is that brings fishes to a given location or a niche within an environment. Now, the first answer we're likely to proffer is the most apparent, right? I mean, they follow the food, right? Now, fishes tend to move into new areas in search of suitable food sources. And food so- uh, sources often become available in, I mean, here I go, flooded forests again, after the rains come and the decomposing leaves and you know, plant materials begin to create or reactivate, as the case may be, food webs, attracting ever more complex life forms into the area. In the case of many blackwater leaf litter habitats in South America, for example, the whole food web starts with our old friends, fungi and bacteria. And, in fact, it's been postulated by scientists that the food web depends primarily on the leaf litter and its associated decomposing fungi. Interesting. From there, sponges, rotifers, and amoeba start, you know, arising. They're in turn fed upon by specialist feeders, like shrimps. And yeah, there are shrimps in the Amazon. You have to do a little research, but there are. And detri- uh, detritivore fishes. And of course, you also have insect larvae, particularly chironomids, uh, i.e. bloodworms, You know, larval flies, small crustaceans such as daphnia and the like, which are preyed upon by a host of fishes. And of course... These flooded forest areas are also attractive to fishes, which consume the very fruits, plant parts, and terrestrial insects, what we call allochthonous input, materials imported into an ecosystem from outside of it. So as more materials start falling from the trees and surrounding dry areas, the greater abundance of fishes and other aquatic animals which use them as food is found. And these materials will continue to fall in the water and accumulate throughout the periods of inundation. And that kind of maintains the richness of the habitat as other materials decompose or are acted upon by the organisms in the water. So how does this relate to stocking an aquarium, Scott? Well, I'd imagine you can literally create a sort of sequence to stocking various types of fishes based on the stage of evolution that your aquarium is in. Although the sequence might be a bit different than nature in some cases. Now, for example, in a more or less brand new aquarium, analogous in this case to a newly inundated forest floor, there might be a lot less in the way of lower life forms like fungi and bacteria until the materials that you find on the substrate start breaking down. So if anything, you're likely to see fishes, which are much more dependent upon the aforementioned allochthonous input, the food from the terrestrial environment, i.e. the the clumsy ant that falls in, the fly, the insect, larvae, whatever, Uh, or in our case... Pellet food, frozen food, flake food, that kind of stuff. So right from the start, after cycling, of course, it would not be unrealistic to add fishes which feed on terrestrial fruits even. Now, who feeds on that? Well, Colossoma, Arowana, Metinus, Those are big fishes which many of us don't keep. They're utterly impractical because of the size and need for physical space. Now, a lot of smaller, more aquarium-suited fishes also pick at fruits and seeds, so you're not totally stuck with the big brutes. carassins. Uh, pencil fish. A lot of these animals um, will eat those types of things. Interestingly too, the consumption and elimination of fruits by fishes is thought to be a major factor in the distribution of many plants in the regions. They are, in other words, they're pooping out seeds and when the waters you know, spread and recede, they're distributing the seeds. I think that's kind of cool. Do a little research here and you might be quite surprised about who consumes what in these habitats. I've seen a number of pictures uh, uh, and various places of like arowana literally jumping out of the water to get fruit off of a tree. I mean, really interesting stuff you can see down there. So there's a lot of interesting um, interactions between the fishes and their environment. And now more realistically for aquarists, I think that you could easily stock first with fishes like surface dwelling or near surface dwelling species like hatchet fishes and pencil fishes. Again, they're largely dependent upon terrestrial insects like flies and ants in nature. In other words, they tend to forage or graze little Uh, and are more opportunistic, and they take advantage of, you know, the clumsy ant, the careless insects, which end up in the water in these newly, you know, immersed environments. Uh, Interestingly enough, I've read studies where almost 100 species of different fishes were documented, which feed near exclusively on insects and arthropods from terrestrial sources in these flooded forest habitats. It's a lot of species. Of course, later, as the materials start to decompose and are acted on by the fungi and bacteria, you could conceivably add more of the grazing type fishes like plecos, small Corydoras, headstanders, uh, etc. As the tank ages and breaks in more, this would be analogous to the period of time when the micro crustaceans and aquatic insects are present in greater numbers, and you'd be inclined to see more of these micro predators like carassins and ultimately small cichlids in in the ecosystem. Interestingly, though, uh, scientists have postulated that evolution favored small fishes like kerosens in these environments because they're more efficient at capturing small terrestrial insects and spiders and such in these flooded forests than the larger guys are and it makes sense if you look at this strictly from a density and variety standpoint lots of kerosens call these you know habitats home kerosens i.e tetras for our purposes just so you know and then there's the detritivores uh the detritivore you know the detritivore, uh, type fishes remove large quantities of this material from submerged tree branches and you know just the general environment you might be surprised to learn that in the wild the gut content analysis of almost every fish though indicates they consume organic detritus to some extent and it makes sense they work with the food sources that are available to them at different times of the year different food sources are easier to obtain And of course, all the fishes which live in these habitats contribute to the surrounding forests by recycling nutrients locked up in the detritus. And this is thought by ecologists to be especially important in blackwater inundated forests because of their long periods of inundation and the nutrient-poor soils as a result of the slow decomposition rates in these environments. All this is pretty easy to replicate to a certain extent when stocking our aquarium when you think about it. Why would you stock in this sort of sequence and you're likely not relying on decomposing botanicals and leaves and the fungal and microbial life associated with them as your primary food source? Well, I guess you likely wouldn't be. However, what about the way that the fishes, when introduced at the appropriate phase, if you will, in the tank's life cycle, what about the way they would adapt to the tank? In other words, are they more comfortable because of some long-established, you know internal programming which provides them with a certain degree of comfort if you will knowing that the minimal competition or predators are about do they behave differently do they acclimate to captivity faster do they feed better do they have more robust overall health and resistance to disease do these conditions help initiate spawning behavior more readily it's interesting to ponder huh Now, these are purely speculative, but they can give you some idea of the things that we can unlock when we think about the natural habitats and how they become populated following seasonal and or other environmental changes and evolutions. The idea of meeting your tank where it is and working to stock it and manage it based on what phase of existence it is in is fascinating to me. Now it's not new to add fishes in a sequence or whatever, I get it, yet I believe it is an evolution in the process when we look at stocking in the context of how the environment that we're trying to replicate evolves and can host fishes. It's sort of another way of looking at many aspects of our aquaria, from providing environmental parameters appropriate for the fishes we like, to aquascaping based on the need of the fishes and the environmental niches from which they come. Not necessarily looking at a tank and decorating it and then adding the fishes to complement it. No, no, no. I'm thinking about looking at You know a natural habitat and asking yourself to consider why it looks the way it does and why the specific fishes which reside there are present in the first place. Ask yourself what makes them live there. Following the food is just one example. There are of course other reasons besides food. There may be environmental reasons. Adaptations to tidal influxes, for example, in brackish water habitats. The need to seek out specific conditions in which to spawn freedom from predators, particularly for juvenile fishes. Uh, again, I'm sort of thinking of mangrove estuaries and seagrass beds where many larval fishes go to grow and feed before heading out to sea or other habitats. But there's numerous other examples in various niches. There's so many possibilities here. And again, you know, individually, some of these things we're talking about don't strike you as like, oh, this is this big development that we've come up with. No, but it's an overall mindset of looking at your tank, looking at your aquarium more holistically thinking about when we plant a tank, it's not just, oh, let's make it look cool Uh, in a a natural style botanical aquarium. It's about facilitating an environment for a multitude of life forms, ranging from the fishes to the epiphytic algae and fungi and biofilms and uh, pre-stocking with uh, micro uh, crustaceans and so forth. There's all these possibilities we can do. And the functional aesthetics, I keep coming back to it, uh, making the tank look the way nature looks for a reason, not just because it's interesting, but but embracing that and embracing the, um, the function of these materials. It's really fascinating. It's a different way of looking at things. It requires some mental shifts because you're looking at some things that look now well, maybe a little disorderly, maybe not necessarily what we have come to recognize as a artistic or, you know, high concept aquascape, but in the end, these are richly complex, beautiful, naturally functioning aquariums that have a, an incredible beauty all their own. And I think the more you get into these, the more you let yourself go from the, you know, nature aquarium mindset of, uh, everything has to be perfect ratios and c- crystal clear water and rocks and stuff. You liberated, you're learning more about the environment of nature, not the environment of some guy's aquarium in Cleveland. It's a totally different approach. And if we make those mental shifts, the possibilities are endless. In fact, there's so many possibilities. There's so many ways to develop aquariums and stock them simply based on looking at nature. So my best advice to you is meet your aquarium where it is. Set the stage for the life forms you want to keep by considering exactly what brings them there in nature. Then observe, enjoy, and learn. Stay inspired. Stay curious. Stay intrigued. Stay objective stay diligent, and of course, always stay wet. Till next time, this is Scott Feldman. Keep blurring the lines. We'll talk to you soon.